This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for online success that helps you build the perfect website to make your business stand out. Whether you're starting a passion project or managing a growing brand, Squarespace makes it easy for you to create beautiful websites, engage with your audience, and sell anything from products to content to time, all in one place on your terms. Unless you're a pro-coding design wizard, and confession time, I'm very much not, making a quality, good-looking website can feel like one of the hardest bits of business. That's why Squarespace is here to help you every step of the way, providing fully customizable professional layouts and templates to choose from. It can also take care of those fiddly bits like device optimization, paywalls, and invoicing. So if, like me, you're more at home with manuscripts than JavaScript, Squarespace is the tool for you. Head to squarespace.com slash history10 for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use offer code HISTORY10, that's HISTORY10, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Just a warning before we start. This episode contains descriptions of violence and sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. The early morning fog sits heavily on the River Seine. It's peaceful. Birdsong is the only noise above the slosh of the water under the fisherman's boat. He's come out early to get his daily catch before the rush of the city begins. He casts his nets over the side of the boat and waits watching the April sun rise over the spires and rooftops of the Norman capital, Rouen. It's gearing up to be a beautiful day. When he tries to pull the nets up, he's thrown off balance and almost loses his footing. They're heavier, much heavier than they should be. He grins to himself. Perhaps it's a bumper yield. He shifts his weight and starts hauling up the nets, hoping to see them jumping with fish, shimmering trout and fat lampreys with their huge, sharp-toothed, blood-sucking mouths. When he sees what he's actually caught, his smile instantly fades. Lying at his feet is the decomposing body of a young man. A kid, really no more than 16 years old. Of course, it isn't that unusual to find dead bodies in the Seine. The river is wide and deep, and dangerous currents swirl below its calm surface. Even strong swimmers can easily find themselves swept away and drowned. This youngster didn't drown, though. The fisherman doesn't have to be a coroner to see that the cause of death was three vicious stab wounds through his torso. He was murdered. But it's even worse than that. Despite the young man's injuries and the effects of being in the water, his face is instantly recognisable. He's one of the most famous people in northern France and far beyond. Arthur, Duke of Brittany. Arthur was a grandson of the great Plantagenet king Henry II and his widow, Eleanor of Aquitaine. He was nephew of the crusader king Richard the Lionheart and was betrothed to the daughter of the French king Philip Augustus. He was adored by the people of Brittany, who considered him the reincarnation of his namesake, the legendary King Arthur. Once, he'd even been heir to the Plantagenet Empire. 
Now he's dead and dumped in a river. So who could have killed him? The fisherman has no idea and no intention of finding out. Because one thing is for sure, Arthur's corpse is likely to bring the attention of some very dangerous people. His killer or killers certainly wouldn't want the body found. And as for Arthur's many supporters, they might well think the fisherman had something to do with the killing if he's the one to find the body. No, the safest thing to do would be to throw Arthur back into the Seine and forget about this whole thing. The fisherman sticks his oar under the body and readies to lever it overboard. But then he pauses. That would mean no proper burial for the young man. His immortal soul would be in danger. The fisherman doesn't have the heart to do it. So he decides to take Arthur's body somewhere where it will get a Christian burial, but where, hopefully, no one will try and make him a scapegoat for finding it. He takes Arthur to the nearby priory at Beck and beseeches the monks to bury the boy. They agree and work together to dig a grave. As they shovel the first cold dirt over Arthur's body, prayers in Latin fill the air. But there's a note of fear in the chanting. The monks are terrified. What they're doing today could get them killed. They're almost paralysed by what a later writer calls fear of the tyrant. That tyrant is not only a major suspect in the murder of Arthur, he's also the man who has the most to lose if it's discovered. A man who will spend the rest of his life dealing with the aftermath of the boy in the river. That tyrant is King John, youngest son of Henry II and Lord of the Plantagenet Empire. This season, I'm going to tell you his story. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. A Dynasty to Die For, Season 3, Episode 1, Soft Sword. Welcome to the new season of This Is History. This is the third season of the podcast, so if it's the first one you've found, go back and listen to seasons one and two, and come back and meet us here. For the rest of you, here's a quick reminder of where we left the action. Last season, we followed the reign of the warrior king Richard the Lionheart. After taking control of the Plantagenet Empire from his own father, Henry II, Richard lived out a life of high drama and bloodshed. He went east on crusade, fighting an epic war against Muslim general Saladin in the Holy Land. Then he was shipwrecked and imprisoned on his way home. While Richard was gone, his scheming brother John made moves against him spreading rumours that the Lionheart was dead and calling himself king. He even gave away half of Richard's territories to the French king Philip. When Richard was finally free to come home, 
he spent the rest of his reign fighting to win back those territories, until a lucky shot with a crossbow sent him off for good. But Richard's actions continued to shape the Plantagenet world long after he'd passed, not least through his choice of successor. Earlier in his reign, he had named his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, as his heir. But just before Richard died, he decided to name John instead. It wasn't an easy choice, given all John's schemes and betrayals. But John was a man. Arthur was a child, and the word from Brittany was that he wasn't growing up to be a much nicer guy than his uncle. Rightly or wrongly, Richard's chopping and changing over the succession is why John is in the frame for Arthur's killing. This young man was a potential threat to his rule. But we'll get back to that murder mystery later. First, I want to tell you a little bit about my own relationship with King John and why I think his story is every bit as important and dramatic as his brother's. It's a quarter of a century since I first met him. I was 16 or 17 in my final year of school. Our curriculum back then was mostly Tudor and Nazi history, but for our A-level exams we got to write a dissertation about whatever we liked. I decided to write about John. Why John? I guess there was something about this guy that just fascinated me, starting with his name. It wasn't just that he was our one and only King John, compared to eight Henrys, eight Edwards, six Georges, two Elizabeths. No, it was the fact that this guy is known as Bad King John. Compare that with the nicknames of other British monarchs. William the Conqueror, Richard the Lionheart, Edward Longshanks, Hammer of the Scots generally quite cool. Then we have Bad King John. Being a budding young historian, for which read a contrary little so-and-so, I was desperate to study John in bold, daring, revisionist fashion. I was hoping to say, you think this guy was bad, but actually you're all wrong. You've been looking at him upside down. In fact, we should be calling him Good King John, Totally Ideal John, absolute baller John. I suspected that since a lot of the chronicles of John's reign had been written by medieval monks, they might have been biased against John, who was never a friend of the church. I reckoned fiction would also be partly to blame. In the Robin Hood stories, King John usually appears as the villain, Darth Vader with a crown. Even in Disney's fun cartoon Robin Hood, He's a no-good, thumb-sucking, cowardly lion. And I assumed John's reputation suffered from comparisons between him and his brother the Lionheart and their father, old King Henry II. Impossible examples to live up to. I started with looking at records from people who knew John in life, and it wasn't a promising start for my hypothesis. Virtually no one who knew John well had a kind word to say about him. You may remember from the last season of this podcast how, in 1199, when Richard the Lionheart died, two of Richard's loyal counsellors had a high-level powwow to debate the merits of John's claim to be Richard's successor. 
One of them said he thought the law was on John's side and he would throw his weight behind John's claim. The other replied, You'll never regret anything so much as what you're doing right now. Then there was something else, also recorded by one of John's contemporaries. It's from a chronicle known as The History of the Dukes of Normandy and the Kings of England, by a writer very unsexily known as the Anonymous of Bethune. It says, He was a very bad man, more cruel than all the others. He lusted after beautiful women, and because of this he shamed the high men of the land, for which reason he was greatly hated. Whenever he could, he told lies rather than the truth. He was brimful of evil qualities. I mean, say what you really think. And there was plenty more like that. This isn't the slander of a lone troll with an axe to grind. It's a distillation of what almost everyone else also thought. So even as an intrepid teenage researcher, I started to think maybe my revisionist take on John wasn't going to shake the foundations of history as we know it. But I'll let you make your own mind up about him by showing you the man in action. Because, villain or not, he's an absolutely extraordinary character whose lust for power changed our world forever. The last of the OG Plantagenet's reign will see the whole balance of power in Europe transformed. The first principles of government we still hold dear today laid down. Heroic and horrific legends created as King John risks everything his family fought to build. So let's start at the beginning, before John gains his diabolical reputation, before murdered teenagers are being fished out of rivers, before, well, anything much has happened. It's just over a year since Richard died and John became king. He's about to have his first real test of leadership, a set to with the Plantagenet's ultimate nemesis, the King of France, Philip Augustus. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. 
the very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. On an island in the River Seine, courtiers rush about, readying the little patch of neutral territory for the arrival of their kings. Mallets thump tent pegs into place. Drinking cups and plates clatter in the kitchens. Musicians tune up their instruments. It's late May 1200. The island is called Le Goulet and the kings are coming here to formally agree a treaty that has been months in the making. Many long, painful negotiating sessions have already taken place. This is the time for sign-off and celebration, for hugs and high-fives. But who, people whisper, has more cause to be happy with the treaty's terms? Philip Augustus? The vastly experienced, extremely wily 34-year-old who has ruled France for almost two decades? Or John, King of England and Lord of the Plantagenet Empire, only two years younger in age, but with barely more than a year of actual kingship under his belt? They've both agreed to the treaty, so they both must think they're getting something good out of it. But only one of them is right. John and Philip have history. A lot of history. They've known each other since they were kids, but in recent years things have been, well, complicated. First, there was that period between 1190 and 1194. This was the time that John's elder brother Richard the Lionheart was away on crusade, and John and Philip teamed up in his absence doing their best to divvy up his empire between them. At that point, they were thick as thieves. But when Richard came roaring back, John was in big trouble. He scuttled back to his big brother's side, and Richard put him to work, helping win back everything he'd given away to Philip. Then Richard died, naming John as his heir before he went which is when things got delicate. For Philip Augustus, there's no air of mystery about this new ruler. It's John. He's looked into his eyes more than once, and he knows exactly what he sees. Yes, John may have the big title now, and the big boy hat. He was crowned the previous May, 1199, at Westminster Abbey but John will never have what Richard had. Philip may have got angry with Richard, frustrated, 
disgusted even, but he never ever believed Richard was anything less than his equal. They were sparring partners who knew each other's styles inside out. For Philip, John isn't a sparring partner, he's a whipping boy. That's why at Le Goulet, Philip can afford to be at his calculating best. He's come to offer John a treaty of friendship between their kingdoms that looks even-handed and offered in good faith. In fact, it's littered with landmines that John either can't or won't see. Philip knows John wants two things above all. He wants Philip to recognise him as the rightful heir to his brother's French territories, Normandy, Aquitaine, and the connecting lands of Maine, Touraine and Anjou. And he wants Philip to promise not to back his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, as a rival claimant to his throne. Philip reckons John isn't prepared to grind away for four or five years at war to achieve that, as Richard or Henry II would happily have done. John wants instant satisfaction. So Philip gives it to him. He agrees to back John as the new Plantagenet ruler. In return, all he asks for is a few towns here and there on the borders, which have been under dispute forever. That's not too much to ask, is it? Oh, he also wants some more lands granted to him another way, with John agreeing to marry his niece off to one of Philip's children. Oh, and one more thing. Could John promise to recognise Arthur as his heir in this place and that place? That would be grand. Ah, and while we're at it, perhaps John could formally recognise that Philip is the real, undisputed boss of all of France and swear an oath to that effect, meaning that Philip is kind of like the freeholder of Normandy, Anjou and all the rest of those Plantagenet territories. Sound cool? Great! In that case, there's just one more little thing. Could John pay, like, 20,000 marks for the privilege of this lovely peace treaty? You know, like a third of England's annual revenue. Theoretically, he has to, actually, under feudal law. It's a bit like an admin fee, and I'm afraid the computer won't allow me to cancel it. If you've been listening to this podcast since season one, I don't need to tell you what Henry and Richard would have said to Philip when presented with this list of demands. You can poke it up your royal derriere, mate, they would have said, and I'll give you a good boot in the same spot to make sure it stays there. But not John. Amazingly, he'd rather have the easy outcome of peace right now and kick the dangerous implications of the treaty down the line. When the two men met earlier in the year 1200 to agree the principle of this deal, they embraced warmly. At Le Goulet, things are just as cordial. But you have to wonder how Philip keeps himself from exploding with laughter, because, to use the technical historical term, he's mugged John right off. When the Treaty of Ligule is formally agreed, John goes away clicking his heels and quickly becomes a laughing stock. The chronicler Gervais of Canterbury, 
based near the coast in Kent, records contemporary gossip that filters back from the continent after John has agreed the treaty. The merchants, pilgrims and diplomats who cross the channel say John has got a new nickname in France. Once upon a time, his father called him Lackland. Now people are calling him Molygladium, Soft Sword. That's every bit as unflattering as it sounds. It's a barb that lands. A huge diss of John's military capability and his general masculinity. The consequences of the Treaty of Legoulet are going to take a while to become obvious to John, but they will be truly devastating. Philip, meanwhile, could not be happier. His trap is set. All he has to do is wait for Soft Sword to walk into it. Gervais of Canterbury adds something interesting to his Soft Sword passage. Writing later on, with the benefit of hindsight, he says that, in fact, the nickname turns out not to be so apt. Because if John was a pushover at Legoulet, that didn't mean he would be a soft touch for the rest of his reign. Pretty soon, John would show that, weak or not, he had a very, very nasty side as well. Less than two years after Legoulet, a fisherman was pulling the body of the Duke of Brittany from the River Seine and cowering for terror of the tyrant. Find out how John goes from laughingstock to one of the most feared rulers in English history in next week's episode of This Is History. Hello! If you want some more medieval history to tide you over before next week's episode, have you considered subscribing to This Is History Plus? It's a space where you can get all episodes of the podcast ad-free, alongside hours of bonus content. Between the seasons, I've been getting together with experts to chew the fat about everything from medieval ghost stories to influencers of the Middle Ages. Plus, after every episode, I sit down with a producer and we dig into everything we've been talking about and explore any tangents we didn't have time for in the main episode. It's free to try, so come and see for yourself. Just go to This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.